Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Do you have a friend that you know really well, but you have no idea what they do for a living? Um, Or they've told you, but it just didn't make sense to you? So today you're going to meet a dear friend of mine named Sandy Safels, who I've known for quite some time. We've been in each other's homes. We've uh, traveled together to some degree. Uh, We've participated in personal growth seminars together. I mean, we've known each other a long time, and we are dear, dear friends. And I knew her involvement in fashion, and I knew she was a film editor, but I had no idea how much of a film editor she really is and was. Um, She works constantly, and she does TV and film, and she's worked literally all over the world. You're going to hear her speak to me uh, from an apartment in Berlin, even though she lives in Munich. She is American and German. She's a fascinating character. She's done work on movies directed by Paul Schrader, starring Jeff Goldblum and Willem Dafoe. I mean, she is a top-notch film editor. She also owned a dress store and has been involved in fashion. And as we'll talk, she has a great eye. And that great eye uh, translates across all her work. And she, like many other people, have not had a straight line in their lives or their creativity because she grew up in Germany, but also in the U.S. You're going to hear more directly from her. So sit back, relax, and listen to a fascinating conversation with my friend and film editor, Sandy Sables. Sandy Safels, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so glad to have you on today. Thank you. I have <laughs> nothing illegal. <laughs> no, no, I know you don't. What, what's funny, and I've talked about this many times, is I originally started this podcast at my wife's and my friend Jody's suggestion. And I started it out as like, oh, I'll do a podcast about the law. And then like two episodes in, I was bored. And then I realized that was just true. And I realized that um, I have so many interesting creative friends and associates and clients that I thought, why don't we talk about creativity? And that isn't or is really legal depending on what we're talking about. And many of these things have a lot of law around them that my creative friends don't ever deal with or occasionally bump into. That's really beside the point. The law stuff's the beside the point. For me, it's like, I've tried to have as many women, people of color, queer people, because their voices aren't heard a lot. And I've also tried to show people that there's no straight line when it comes to creativity, whether it's, um, you know, as, as something you do for fun or something you do for a career. There is no straight line. Nobody has the same story as anybody else. And you are such a great example of that. So... Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, when we, I didn't even know the volume, the breadth, the depth of your editing work until I did research for this podcast. And I've known you for years. I know you're an editor, a film editor, I suppose is what I would say, but I had no idea the amount of work that you've done until I went onto your IMDb page. Because <laughs> I've known you as a friend, as someone who, is great to go to restaurants with, who's funny, who's sweet, 
who has great taste in clothes, who owned a clothing store at one point. I mean, you've had a, and you're a parent, um, you're a wife, you're, you're a lot of things. And the editor just kind of fits in there, but it's not something that we talk about a whole lot in our friendship. So I'm actually excited because I'm going to learn a lot about you today, I hope. That's so cool. I was just with a friend a while ago and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a podcast with a friend, but actually I should be interviewing him about, you know, even about creativity and all the things that you do. And I mean, I was like, well, Eric, I don't know. He does a lot of stuff. He's an actor. He's a lawyer. He's a stand-up comedian. I saw your guitar on Facebook. <laughs> You do, I don't know, do you still like represent uh, writers? I do, but only as a lawyer, not as an agent. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's really fun to, you know, get your perspective as well. I mean, creativity is, is something that I feel that flows through us and is not something we uh, have, you know, like people say, I'm not a creative person. I don't believe that exists, a non-creative person. I agree with you completely. It's just a question of whether you say no to what's showing up in your life as possible creativity. Uh, Well, I want to start from the beginning for you. Um, First of all, you're unusual in that you come from two different cultures. Your parents are American and German. And while those aren't wildly disparate, they are different. And certainly you came about at a time, I'm not asking your age, but we're not so different in ages, you and I. So you were born like me during the Cold War. And Germany was really the epicenter of the Cold War. Um, And your father was in the military for America, right? Right, he was. But actually, the area where we, where I, where my mother comes from in Germany is not really the, you know, I, right now I'm in Berlin um, working. I work a lot in Berlin. So there's a lot more of the presence of from East Germany, West Germany, the wall. But we didn't really, that wasn't a part of our culture. My dad had been in, in Vietnam. And uh, so I was on my with my mother on her father's farm for that time. And that was like, that was the more of the world that that I lived in. It was less, you know, East Germany was not part of that. It's really funny. Actually, you know, again, as an American, I've been to Germany quite a few times and will be we're, we're planning another Germany trip and I'll talk to you about that, not during the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm amazed how when you get on a train and the trains are great in Europe, folks, it's just, I could do a whole episode on just why the trains are so much better in Europe than in America. But um, you get out of a city and you are in the country pretty quickly and you see a lot of farmland in Germany and Switzerland, you know, those countries. It's it's breathtakingly beautiful and it's pretty quick outside of a city. But I wanna back up to Berlin. I've only been to Berlin once. And what strikes me about Berlin, as you said, is the presence of history there. Most of it, a, um, a feeling of sadness and maybe shame, 
um, a lot of apologetic signs, or at least a lot of signs uh, to show some of the more terrible things that happened there, which is a very interesting perspective uh, from my point of view. And it's, it's, it's actually kind of strange because if America did that, it would be very hard to travel around because <laughs> everybody's done some pretty amazingly tragic things. Um, do, do you even see them or are you kind of blind to those signs? And was no. I just hyper aware of them? I'm sure you were hyper aware of them, but they're still like, they have so-called Stolpersteine, which are tripping stones. They're these little, um, you know, the cobblestones, they have little golden plates of people that in front of buildings of people, Jewish people that lived there that were murdered in Auschwitz. And so you walk down the street and you, you walk over these regularly. Right. So that, and then, yeah, this, even yesterday I was with friends and we talked about it, you know, like, it's like, I like that they wrote murder on it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not just disappear, you know, yeah. right, right. But also there's pieces of the wall that are still up and monuments to people who tried to cross the wall, you know, just from the time. So there's just, uh, there's the whole East-West thing, the communist thing. There's obviously the Nazi thing. There's just a lot. But what I am also struck by with Berlin is how incredibly beautiful it is as a city and how diverse, how the food was amazing everywhere I went. And I just, I've got to get back to Berlin. I think it's a really cool place. Do you like working there? Um, right now I just moved apartments. Yes. Uh, <laughs> last week I was in a, in a place where I was like, I don't really want to be, here. I want to go home. I have, you know, I live in Munich where the mountains are close and, and it's a lot quieter. It's, it's, um, I ran into a lot of people with, you know, drug problems and I was like, Oh, why don't they take care of these people here? But you know, it's, I think it's even stronger than in New York. Yeah, it's funny. People always tell me, you'll love Berlin. It's just like New York. And I was like, that wasn't my experience. And it was a little grittier in many ways, Berlin, in my experience than New York has been. New York got a little Disney-fied. Um, I actually don't have a problem with it being nicer to walk around in New York and not have some of the problems that Berlin seems to have. My experience is actually Hamburg feels more like where I live, which is Brooklyn. And, you know, you've got the waterfront, you've got like cool uh, bars and a uh, real vibe that just feels more like Brooklyn to me. I don't know if that's the same for you. I don't know how often you get to yeah. Hamburg these days. Not very often. I mean, since COVID, we haven't all not been traveling that right. much. <laughs> On the other hand, I've been traveling, traveling a lot. I, I was in Rome this summer for a couple of months on the same project as I am here. And, but, you know, on the other hand, I work a lot. I don't get to see much of the city. I, you know. Well, let's talk about your. I, I, I want to talk about your work. I do want to talk about your travels too, because I haven't been to Rome yet. I haven't been to Vienna yet. I think you were in Vienna, which sounded amazing. But I want to back up a second to, um, you know, you grew up speaking both English and German. A, a lot of my German friends have. It was pretty ordinary or normal. But because you had a family that was both American and German, did it feel any different than the rest of your German friends growing up? 
Well, it used to be uh, extraordinary. You know, we used to be special because uh, of having an American father and, and being bilingual. But nowadays, it's really very normal. Everybody travels. Everybody speaks at least two languages fluent. And um, most of the time, even three, because they, we, we learned a third language at school. Right. And um, people are traveling more. So it's really normal. But when growing up, it was. So I went to German school from seventh grade on. And um, they didn't understand my English because it didn't have a German accent. <laughs> and so I started speaking English with a slight German accent. So people would understand me at school. And uh, that was fun. I have noticed, by the way that today your English has just a slight German accent to it. You probably haven't been speaking English very much lately, but when I've hung out with you, and I think I first met you here in New York at an event, and you and I have hung out literally all over the world, Costa Rica, Munich, yeah. Hamburg. Um, when you're around Americans for a length of time and speaking English, you sound like an American. And I remember when I first met you, I was confused by you because <laughs> you spoke English like an American and then were able to speak German with the Germans. I mean, obviously flawlessly and very much sounding German. I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on here. Something's going on. So, Well, I mean, when you speak with home, I don't know where exactly you come from. Like your folks, they may have a different accent. And then your friends will, your, you know, your wife will probably say, did you just speak from somebody from home? <laughs> it's kind of similar with the, you know, German English for us. It's like, um, right. I've been speaking German all day. So now I have to warm up to the English again or, you know, drop that. And, and I think it's, a, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. If I talk to my family, you may not understand my English because it's so what we call bridge and tunnel accent which is a very snobby New York way of referring to people who aren't in Manhattan. And I'll add Brooklyn to that because Brooklyn's the city too. But if you're from Long Island, especially, which is where I'm from, or Jersey, you get a sort, you get a, you talk a little more like this. It's a little mushy mouth. And so, and some people love that accent. Some people hate that accent. So I love it. I have I was no talent for accents. So, I mean, speaking two languages is amazing. Uh, I tell you, speaking two languages is amazing. I speak Spanish fairly well. I'm playing around with German, but I'm also trying to learn some French. You know, my wife speaks French fluently. Um, yeah. And we plan on doing more traveling. So I think the way to learn is just throw yourself in, right? Right. Um, but back to you in editing. So when did you even think, I mean, to me, editing is such a very specific skill, and I especially film editing. Um, when we learn to write, we learn about editing in writing, and maybe if we do other terms, types of art, like you know, drawing or whatever, we learn about editing in the sense that we're removing or adding things. But film editing is such a specific skill, and I didn't even understand it until I was much more of an adult. And I was already probably acting. I didn't even realize that was the thing that people did. And so, like, how did you, on your journey, discover editing and decide this was a thing that you wanted to do? It was, um, well, I didn't actually discover what editing was till I was in the middle of the job doing it. Um, I, uh, 
it was as easy as I wanted to get a ticket to a fashion show. The play, the the production company I was working for as a secretary, they um, they they were going to shoot something at a fashion show. When I said, "Oh, I want to go," you know, can you take me in as part of the team? And the director saw me on the list and said, "Oh, I could use her." And so I um, I I joined him from the beginning to the end of the production. I was like. I don't think this is for me. And then in post-production, I was like, oh, wow, look at this. And then there was all, you know, back then we had like a video editing suite that looked like uh, Starship Enterprise. It had all these bright lights and big machines and stuff. And I was like, ooh. And I it really, I, I, I was just so exciting and I loved it. And um, I did everything to get into that. And so I started, you know, I asked the, the editor, we had like a film, 35 millimeter film department as well. And I asked the, the head editor back then, I said, how can I learn this? You know, you got to teach me. And he goes, well, go up to the archive, get some tapes and put some music under it and put some pictures together and start that way. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll go do that. <laughs> One after, you know, and then I got to do a making of for a commercial. And then I uh, started doing trailers for for movies in the cinema and um and then one of the producers said hey i see you editing our movie and i'm like really and <laughs> i'm like okay i'll do it and it was so fun because you know we had this brand new technology called avid back then we had oh uh, yeah we had one of those in our edit suite and i'm like Hmm, I want to learn this. And we had an editor come over who was supposed to edit a commercial and his assistant was supposed to come and put the sound on and uh, something happened. He couldn't come. And so the editor called me and said, can you do that? I'm like, sure. I know. I Sure. I could do that. <laughs> then I was like, "Uh Oh, how do I do this? And then I called everybody new and figured it out and I did it. And um, that's basically how I learned editing. And, that's how I learned the technology, but learning really what editing means and, and how you can influence the story, that's something I learned from the directors I worked with mainly. It feels a lot like what you're talking about is when I've done acting. I read a lot about acting. I took acting classes. I even did scene work. You don't know how to act until you just freaking do it. And yeah. uh, I think the same, well, especially with comedy, you get up there you think you know how to tell a joke, you think you know timing, and then the audience will let you know if in fact you do know or not. <laughs> and so it's just, you just gotta keep going up and doing it. And I'm guessing that was part of the deal. There's certainly technology for music and other forms of art, but you know, ultimately uh, you use the technology as a tool to do something else, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to know with your heart, well, let me, let me back up a second, because there are technical issues when you're doing movies, like um, I need to see this person's face at this time. And do we have a decent shot of them reacting versus we don't? Well, what else can we do here that will not make the viewer go, what is happening? <laughs> I mean, you have to really be a problem solver as an, as an editor, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah. But we're a team in the end. I mean, we have producers and then like on the show that I'm working on right now, we have a showrunner who just came in now. And so 
you'll have a script and they will shoot according to the script. And sometimes they make changes while they're shooting because they notice it doesn't really work. You have the actors there and it's like something feels odd. And then, and then you put all the scenes together and then you watch it and you're like, this isn't working. And that's very normal that it doesn't really, it, it, it'll be cool. You have a lot of great scenes. You're like, oh yeah, but something's wrong, you know? And then to figure out what is it? And sometimes it's just a sentence they say too much that will confuse you or, you know, very, I, I, it's not that often that something's missing. I'm, I notice that often it's just something that is said that you, you know, that sticks to the back of your head and you're waiting for it to be explained or to happen or something. And sometimes it's just as easy as leaving it out. You know, it's funny. I, I just realized, uh, you know, for anyone listening in, we're not going to explain the art of editing in one hour. It's just not going to happen. So I'm just going to be asking a few things that will hopefully trigger some stuff. But this is a complicated art form that you have taken a lifetime to master and continue to master. I know you... Uh, you and I are similar. We're very good at what we do, yet we're somewhat self-effacing. We go, well, I'm not the best, and you know, I'm still learning. It's like, that's fine, but you know, anyone who wants to go to Sandy's IMDb page will see that um, there's a lot of credits here, and they don't, I'm going to tell you, they don't, they being producers, money people, directors, they don't continue to hire people who don't do well. <laughs> you know, you have a track record. Um, so I just want to throw that out there for people who are listening. Um, but also, I, I love that you said sometimes it's more leaving something out. I have been noticing on shows that I don't care for, where the dialogue will include things that I know. Like, you don't have to tell me that. You're making me feel a little stupid, almost. Yeah. It's like, you're like why, why waste time with that? And then I'll notice other times something I love will just be a line happens and I'll see it land on somebody's face and we'll stay almost a little too long, but that's okay. Cause I wanna see what's going on with the people in the scene. But there's another thing I noticed recently. I, re I watched an old film that I'd never seen before. It was shot in 1971. It's called Harold and Maude. Hal Ashby was the director, very famous movie. Um, it stars one of my all-time favorite actresses. Um, I'm just blanking on her now, but she's a brilliant writer. Um, and she wrote movies in the 40s. Oh, I'm gonna kill myself if I don't put this in here. But um, so anyway, I'm watching, there it is. I've got it queued up here. Sorry folks, it's Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon, who was a genius. Um, I'm watching the movie and I'm noticing things like that are so different from the way we watch movies now. There's two shots that just stay two shots. And for people who don't know what that means, it means there's two people that you're watching in a frame, just sitting there talking to each other. We're not going back and forth to close-ups, you know, back and forth. Like it just stays there and rests there, which is, it's a slower movie. The pace of it is just slower. And it's, um, it just feels different. Even the lighting feels different. Do you ever look at the way that storytelling on film has evolved over time. Do you think about that in any of your work? Yeah, you can tell, I mean, in editing, there's like, I feel like there's always like a trend that's happening right now. There's like, do not do cross fades. You don't want to fade, you know, that's like a no-no or the-, the What's I a cross fade, just so 
So if you have two pictures that are lapping, overlapping, and you see like, you know, you would like, if we would overlap, do a fade between the two of us, then we'd see both faces for a short time and it oh, goes gotcha. over works from you to me. Um, but sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they work really nice, you know, you gotta, and, and the, the, this, the, like, Edits are slowing down now. I feel like people are are looking at pictures like a, a two shot for a longer amount of time. Um, and I noticed the more time you have to edit, and the more often you see an edit, people get like, ah, "This might be boring. Let's do some more cutting here." You know, and I, that's something that we have to watch out for that we don't get impatient and say, "Hey, we've seen it so many times." But people that see it for the first time, we have to keep remembering what it was like the first time we saw the rushes. And that's the hardest part, actually, seeing you know, it with a fresh eye, with a beginner's mind. Yeah, you know, I, I think of music having been in recording studios where someone's going to take a day to get a snare sound right. When it's like, it's just a snare. The song is important. Are people who buy the record going to care that much if the snare is just tweaked that differently? It's you're making people crazy, you know? And sometimes you'll find as they go through recordings, they'll do 20 takes of a song and they end up using the first or the second take because yeah. that's where the blood was. By the yeah. 10th time, everybody's tired of the effing song. Yeah. The musicians, the engineers, everybody. So, uh, you know, I, I've heard stories about Clint Eastwood doing one take and moving on, which like most directors are terrified of the idea of just constantly doing one take checking the gate, as they say, and moving on. But I heard a, a story, Matt Damon was telling somebody, he, he went up to Clint Eastwood once after one of those one take things. He's like, can I have another take? And Clint Eastwood was like, why do you want to waste everybody's time? Oh, cool. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, I don't know. There's, I'm sure there's a fine, there's a happy medium there, uh, but it is interesting when you're where you are, I always have the sense that you're the one with the time, that they don't have time on set, they don't have time as writers, whatever. By the time it gets to you, you're the one who has all the time, but that may not be accurate, right? No, that's not accurate at all. I always feel like there's no time we have, like, see, we have, like, if they use more than one camera, so we'll have, like, twice the amount of what they've, you know, what... Either video or film? yeah. And and you have we look at the material very closely and all of the material we you know and then you edit when in my case I go back over the material again afterwards just to make sure that now that I've understood the scene and what the scene wants from me I go back to make sure that I look at it with that eye because before I was just looking for what's good what do I like what's you know what's a great performance what tells the story that I know at that point. But once you've edited it, usually you find, oh, there's some hidden stuff in there that we can, you know, tickle out and, and give it more of this, um, like, like uh, if there's something going on that's underneath, I love those moments, you know, there's like, people are talking about something, but they really mean something else and how to, how to really make that strong and palpable for anybody who's watching it. So fleshing out the subtext? Yes. I, and that's, I, that's the most fun. 
I like this idea and I don't know if it's accurate, but I'm going to ask you, do you ever find stuff in the pile? I just think of it as a pile. I know it's not a pile, but, it, you know, where the director or somebody may go, yeah, you know, three is the one, you know, take three was great on this and take five was great on this. But you look at the first couple, which they didn't think were great. And you're like, oh, no, there's there's something great here. I'm good. I most of the time I ignore their notes because I know, no, I know that they are under the influence of whatever the day brings with them. You know, sometimes they're in a fight with, uh, with, with the scene itself or, or they, you know, somebody was complaining all day and they're like, that was terrible. And then, you know, they'll go back and say, oh yeah, that was a lot better. Or, Or thank you for looking at it neutrally because I didn't have the neutrality on that day. So, uh, and you know, m- most good directors will ask you to do that to just you know just to go with your own feeling and and offer them something. Wow, that's and, cool. I I think it would be really fun to be a fly on the wall of you editing just to learn some things. What do you think are? What, I'm invited. Did you say that? Yeah. Oh, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> oh, well, might do a, well, it just might take you up on that. Um, have you, uh, when you first, I've got so many questions. Uh, of course, I never write them down because I don't, I like to just go with what's happening. But when you first started to sort of get good at this, were there any rules that you discovered that are still rules for you today? I've always been looking for rules. Like every time somebody told me something, there's like rare opportunities. I had like this one senior editor years ago, uh, my former father-in-law, so to say, and he was an editor. Uh, He'd worked with Orson Welles. And he told me downward movements, you know, if you have like a director, uh, uh, um, um, musical director, what Mm -hmm. do you call them? A conductor. And conductor, thank you. And uh, you never cut on the upward movement, always cut on the downward movement. So, you know, somebody's, and sometimes sometimes I'll think of that when I'm, uh, when an edit just doesn't feel smooth, I'm like, is there something going up? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or, you know, things like don't cut on a blink of an eye. There's just a few little rules that, you know, but other than that, um, I try to avoid rules because. I feel like if I have a rule, like I was saying with fades, um, sometimes they're 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 appropriate, and it's always looking and seeing what is it that this film wants and needs because every film has its own demands. It's like it's got its own character, and and I always feel like if if I have a handwriting or a style that I want to put over the film then I'm mistreating the film. It's not giving it justice because each film has its own wishes and desires and, and, and it gets you know, the attention that it needs. I love the way you talk about films and scenes like a living thing that has, well, I don't know how I can get you to explain that more. Can I just ask you, can you? Yeah, it's like an organism. You take something away at one point, it changes the whole flow in the end. You know, that continues. If you restructure something, it, it, it's, it's like a living thing. It constantly changes. If you do one thing, it, I don't know, like if you, 
have, um, oh my goodness, I don't have any examples. If you have a scene. Well, can I possibly, from my actor point of view, say sometimes uh, a scene isn't working and there's an obstacle that seems to be showing up? Is there a way you can remove the obstacle in the editing or maybe enhance the obstacle so we all feel the struggle? I mean, is that something? Yeah, that's what we do every day. Um, <laughs> we like, for example, I, I have an example, um, a scene of a actor or, or character explaining his history and his past and why he, you know, something isn't the way he, that he behaves in a strange way. And then if you have that before he behaves in a strange way, it doesn't have the quality as if, as when you explain that afterwards. Right. right. And then it just solves the, yeah, it, it becomes less interesting for sure. Yeah, you know, he's like saying, "Oh, I, I don't, uh, um, I don't work with animals anymore because of this and that." But then, if you see him not wanting to work with animals, and then later on he explains this to somebody else, then you're like, ah, "That's that's why he was so strange at the beginning." You get to discover it for yourself instead of having somebody explain to you, "This is what I'm going to do next." I apologize if you're hearing noise, both to you and the listeners. Uh, you know where I live because you've stayed in my apartment and you know there's a major highway not far away. So we're sometimes getting, for some reason, people have noisy cars today. I apologize. Um, I want to talk a little bit, we talked briefly about you growing up in Germany. Um, being an editor, have you mostly, you've worked mostly in Europe. Have you done any editing in America? Well, we wouldn't know each other if I hadn't. Uh, I, came, <laughs> uh, I came to New York in uh, 2007, uh, working with Paul Schrader on a, on a, on a movie with um, Jeff Goldblum and Willem Dafoe. And <sighs> right, I saw that in your credits because I was like, Jeff Goldblum is like on the poster. Yeah, and that was my first time in New York. I was like, ooh, it's going to be really fancy. I'm going to be have this big edit suite and everything. So I ended up, I went to Times Square. I'm like, mm, golden doors and everything. <laughs> went upstairs and there was like a dinky little, little tiny little room with a window that doesn't really close, right? Like all windows in New York, I would say almost. <laughs> and uh, uh, I kept hearing the, the, the American ambulances, you know, like, ooh, this sounds like a, a movie you know like a, an action movie and uh but what I was working on was something different and it's like very very funny well you know real estate is was and is so expensive in New York that you probably got a great location being in Times Square mm -hmm. um but you they couldn't afford to put you in a very large place there um yeah I saw that well my question here's why I'm asking a question um Look, we live in a world where women have not always been treated so great, and even currently, and in all across industries. And um, showbiz very recently has talked a lot about the Me Too movement and all these sort of things with talent in front of the camera. Um, were there difficulties coming up in a really male-dominated, or it seems male-dominated business, a show business? Did you run into difficulties as a woman ever? 
I never perceived them. I not till recently I've noticed there's like, um, I never did. I never did have the experience that being a woman was um, a hinderness in any way. I had like being a mother. I I chose projects that kept kept me at home in Munich more than you know traveling all over the world. So um, that made a difference, but not not really. I didn't. And recently, it started more. Just recently, it's like I, I had the situation where my colleague and I, I mean, a man and a woman, uh, automatically everybody assumed that he was my boss, you know? Ah. That was, that was like, ah, interesting. So, but I don't, yeah. yeah I've, I, I've been lucky that way. I haven't had that. And being an editor used to be a female-dominated uh thing in in europe it used to be just you know women from good houses they were sent off to to edit films well i noticed that um you know you say paul schrader he's probably most famous for working with martin scorsese uh doing scripts and and other things for like i think he wrote the script for taxi driver and yeah probably yeah i mean these are huge films um and I know, or I think I know, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that uh, Martin Scorsese has always used a particular woman as his editor. Yeah. And I don't remember her name, but I was like, uh, I, I'm sorry, say it again. Schoonmaker, uh, I think Thelma Schoonmaker is her name. Uh, and I, was her. I, I will admit to you and my listeners that, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a culture, I had lots of prejudices and obviously still do. I just see them a little more clearly when I see them uh, that I was like, what? <laughs> a woman that, like, I, you know, I, I just, I didn't know it was a thing or a possibility. And then I, I did. I mean, still to this day, it seems that it's harder for women to be given directing jobs I don't know if that's 100% accurate now, if people are making a move to make that happen. But I can just think of a few, you know, I don't know a whole lot of them. But I love that you didn't have any issues. And I love that, you know, people should go to Sandy Safehill's IMDB page. You will see um, like 46 credits. And you're, well, I won't say how old you are, but you're, you're, you've got a lot of life <laughs> left in you. Um, you're currently, it looks like you did a couple of uh, episodes of a really wild looking TV series. I don't know if this is a European series or I've never heard of it called, can I talk about your shows and stuff? Sure. Biohackers, which yeah. has like a really cool uh, look to it. But you, it seems like you have a real wide variety of projects because some of these things look like thrillers some of them look like action and some are like, wow, this is a relationship movie. And yeah. by that, I mean, there's like eight people in the whole movie and it could take place in two apartments and a restaurant, you know, as opposed to like, here comes an army over a hill <laughs> or like <laughs> here come 30 helicopters with secret biological weapons or whatever. Like it's, yeah. a, you know, you, you, it seems like you do it all. Do you like having that uh, variety? A project? Yeah, 
I do. I do. And I feel like I'm very lucky that way. I feel like a lot of colleagues get stuck into drawers, like we say in Germany, that they're put in a box that they are like, for a while, you know, people were saying, oh yeah, you're, you're the comedy specialist, you know? And I was like, really? <laughs> and, and then, um, I just, I think it's just the, the directors that I end up working with. Um, and I think most of the time I judged by, you know, do I want to work these, work with these people? Do I like them? Is this going to be a fun time? And, uh, is that how you, because you know, I was talking to my wife, Holly, who is a dear friend of yours, who actually yeah. you've known before you knew me. Um, and she was like, I wonder how she picks her projects. I'd like to know that. Well, I, I changed my mind frequently on, on what's the best way. You know, there was a while where I was like just saying yes to people that had asked me. And I, you know, I said immediately yes and turned down stuff that would have been better for my career. And then I decided, okay, I should go for that. But in the end, I'm just going with my gut feeling. I like that. I heard Dame Judy Dench say she's now at the point where the, her first question is, who's going to be on this project? because she's gonna, she knows she's gonna be spending a month or two with a bunch of people. Yeah. And she just can't bear to be with people she won't have fun with anymore. Now she's older and she's front of camera and she's already got all the awards and she's a dame in that. So it's a, it may be a little different for her. Um, but heck, you know, she's been in James Bond movies and I thought she killed it in them. So, you know, and I also saw her in Henry V. I and mean, I've seen her do just everything. I, I love the idea of doing lots of different things. I think it's cool that you do too. Um, and because I know you personally, I know that at one point, well, you've always been involved in fashion too, which I find really interesting. Um, you at one point owned a store. Was mm -hmm. it in Munich that your store was? It was in Munich. It was, um, I had it for exactly five years and I enjoyed it a lot. You have such a good eye. I remember seeing many of the things from your shop on several of my friends, including my beautiful wife, who has a black and white dress that she got from you. I think we were in Hamburg and you brought it to Hamburg for her to try on. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. And well, I she's think got she came to Munich. I think she got oh, that in Munich. Okay. Yeah. See, well, look. I'm wrong about so many things, so it doesn't bother <laughs> me anymore. Um, all I know is that I won because she looks great in it and I've danced with her in it. And um, I appreciate you for that as well as other things. Um, owning a store is just a whole other ball game from editing, but yet there's probably skill overlap, right? I mean, you well, can't have everything in your store. You have to edit, right? Yeah, well, when you say you have uh, you have an eye, that I guess that's the thing that they have in common: editing and having a shop, and really finding what matches who. You know, I'm not really much into shopping. I'm not a big shopper, but I love finding what matches to who. You know, what's what's the perfect outfit for somebody, and um, so that was really it. Was a lot of fun, but in the end, I it was basically 24 seven with editing and, and the shop. And when I wasn't working on a project, I was always in the store. So I, and I wanted to be able to travel a little bit and, and 
And you also have a really lovely husband who you were dating at the time. And my guess is you wanted to spend some time with him too. Well, you had something to do with, you know, like, oh, being married is so fantastic. All right. So I will cop to this. I, I know you and your husband <laughs> and you guys were dating for pretty much as long as I'd known you. And I don't know why I had this gut feeling. First of all, I don't know why it was any of my business. But, <laughs> and I don't, you have to know, I don't do this with anybody else. But we have joked around, you and I, and I guess I've known you since around 2009. I think we met in New York in an event. Um, but like we hit it off right away in a way that we're just like buddies, you and I. And almost like we're big, like brother, sister. And I don't know who's the big one. And it has nothing to do with age. And I think it goes back and forth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And by a big one, I mean, look, look, you're like five feet tall. For people who don't know Sandy, she's not a tall person. I'm five foot four. Um, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to take those four inches away from you. Um, but uh, I felt compelled. And it was at a time when I started to trust my intuitive self. And look, I, I was right. I mean, you guys did get married. You're I, happily married. He's a great guy. You're a great woman. Um, you both look great in clothes. I just want to, so people know, like, they, but I mean, I've never seen you without them, and that's not my point. My point is, you guys have a really good sense of fashion. You look good together. I don't know if you dress him or he's been dressing himself. So, by the way, just as complete, so this sometimes happens in relationship where the guy gets dressed and they're about to go out, where I, I don't want to be sexist. Let me, where one, somebody's ready to go and the other person goes you're not wearing that are you or like you have those other shoes they're better with that outfit like do you ever style uh benedict before he heads out the door um <laughs> you are well, hesitating with this one pair of shoes <laughs> that uh we did some uh painting but well i would give him advice and he'll give me advice the thing about our relationship is it's um, different than any other relationship I'd had before. And um, it's, again, here, the man-woman thing is mm -hmm. just obsolete. It's like, he does the cooking. I, I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, he is, there's like, there's, there's no difference between us being, you know, and I'm a lot older than he is too. And there's, there's just, there's, he's my partner, my best friend. And, um, when you say a lot older, 10 years. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, for some people, that's not a lot. That's true. That's you true. and I have friends. The age disparity is larger than that. You're right. Um, but my experience of you and him together is there's no age disparity. There's no disparity. So what you're saying to me is very honest. That there's no, you're just a partnership. I don't see one being in charge of anything. Or uh, I think that's really, I see this in relationships that really work amongst my friends. I'll say that with me and Holly too, is that I mean, she, she might take the lead in something. Like when we renovated our apartment and redesigned it, she might be like, I want this and this and this. But she would never just do it without asking me for like how I felt about it. But I'm just a yes or a no. 
Like I, I, a great example is we'll go out to dinner somewhere, anywhere in the world. And we'll walk by places we don't even know. And she'll go, oh, we shouldn't go in there. She just, she gets great intuitive hits on restaurants. And when she gets a yes to go in, it's always great. And at some point, I literally have stopped ordering most of the time. I just say, why don't you order what you think is going to be great? Because I have brilliantly married someone that I've been able to delegate that to. It's not that I don't have any responsibility. I got the best person I could for that. And so often, go ahead. Eric, you're not, you're not a don't tell me what to do anymore. And we both are only in, I mean, we know each other through transformation, through Ariel and Chaya Kane, through the seminars. And I know that neither you nor I, I mean, that's what we have in common. I heard you on on their podcasts, on their radio show. um, And I was like, that's a soulmate. I mean, even before I saw you, we are so much alike. But, you know, we've both learned that we don't have to be right all the time. Our partners can, you know, they can just say, I want to do this. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. And we know we're going to win. And um, we've just, I mean, I know that I would never have the relationship I have without having learned these tools and learning, you know, how to be a grown up, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think that a lot of relationships suffer from people looking like adults, but behaving like children. Yeah. And you and I definitely grew up before we got married. And that made the marriages that much better and make the marriages that much better. Yeah. And that's right. We, I've had a couple of those experiences where I would meet the European friends who might have heard me on a podcast of Ariel and Shia's. And like we're instant friends because we knew each other from listening to each other on these podcasts. And by the way, if you're just, you know, if you have questions about this, you can always go to isthatreallylegal.com, leave me a message. But we're also talking about Ariel and Shia Kane and um, their website is transformationmadeeasy.com. Um, that's made a tremendous difference in both our lives. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go back to the fact that you you are in Berlin right now in what looks like a really lovely apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Do they rent you an apartment? Not a hotel room, right? Yeah, I have that in my contract. I don't want to stay in a hotel. I want to be, you know, I mean, here, I've been away from home since May 17th. Wow. The time yeah. we're recording this, by the way, is October 17th. So that's a yeah. fairly long amount of time. Now, has Benedict come to visit you? Yeah. So like I said, I was in Rome for three months and he spent a lot of that time there. And, um, and he will be spending more time here. He works as a, a he also works in the film industry. So right. he, the beginning of the year, uh, he was away from home. He was in Prague. Right. You guys go to some very cool places for work. Can I tell you that when I go to other locations for my job as an attorney, it's rare that I don't go to Rome. I'll just, I won't say what prisons I've gone to, uh, oh, but yeah. none of them are Rome or Prague or, you know, so I, <laughs> I have to tell you, I do envy you guys, but we'll just come, we'll just come and visit. That's what we'll have to do. And That's I've right. seen you, you have a beautiful apartment in Munich, which uh, is 
every time I think of it, I get a smile on my face because it's just very you guys. It's very, it's, um, it's elegant. There's something elegant about the way you live. And I like that. And you guys have to come and see us in our new renovated place. You oh, have yeah. an open invitation. Uh, of course, I'm talking to Sandy, not all the listeners. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I just, it's not that big an apartment. It's big, but it's not that big. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to wrap this up. This has flown by. I wanted to know if there was anything that you felt like, oh, I wish we talked about this, or I'd love to talk about that. But um, no, no you should I, I, I'm surprised it's already, it's been an hour already. Well, pretty much. I mean, we did get a little late start because a certain technology that we take uh, for granted was having a, it was having its own temper tantrum, but we resolved right. it. Um, I want to tell people that I'll have the information up about Sandy so you can see uh, what her IMDb page is and the kind of work that she's done. Um, I'm just thrilled that we got a chance to talk and I got to, I have so many other questions of you. We barely scratched the surface. I mean, you grew up on a farm. Like that's so outside my experience. How, how long did you live on a farm as a kid? That was only for, for one year. Oh, okay. And then where did you, then you lived in yeah. the city? Well, then we lived on military bases, on Air Force bases. Oh, see, now that's so, a whole other lifestyle. That's a complete different lifestyle. That's a, a world in itself. And then- I've been on military bases touring for when I was in another life, but doing entertainment. My experience was how insular those things were. They're like their own little countries mm -hmm. um, and how difficult life can be for families on those bases. Um, but also, you know, you lived in housing that was provided by the military, right? Right. So what was it like to, I know when you live in those kind of housing things, there's, you're limited in how much you can do with those apartments or houses, right? No, you're not? Well, well I don't know. We loved it. I mean, my mom lived, loved living on a base. I mean, coming from from a farm, she she was more, she wanted to be in the city or be around people and she loved it. And we had, there was always, most people at the same age. So they have kids about the same age, you know, military. So there was lots of kids all the time. Um, and my dad was, he managed to always be stationed either near my mom's family or his family, him in California or, so we were not at all contained on this base. We were like always visiting family on weekends. And oh, that's so, great. Well, yeah. I can see how you'd have the best of both worlds then. So that was, and we, I, I liked the bases. Um, uh, that's, that's great. Did you enjoy your time in California? Mm-hmm. Well, last place we were stationed was Beale Air Force Base, which I don't know if you've ever heard of, but it's near Yuba City. Yuba City one year was rated like uh, uh, the worst place to live. <laughs> I think it's just because it's so hot, probably. It's out in the boonies in the desert. And, right. uh, but I mean. So it wasn't the Presidio. It was huh? You weren't like at the Presidio, which is like a fancy place near San Francisco, which... I think they don't yeah. even own it anymore. 
we had Gosh. snakes and tarantulas, but we, I, I mean, also that, and we had, you know, we had a big little, like, like a kid's pool in the, in the garden, in the backyard. And I don't know, we played a lot and I just, I was very lucky. I feel like I had a great childhood. I wonder, part of that is probably kids don't know anything than what they have and they just make the best of it and play with what they got. And part of it is also, um, you're, you're a joyful spirit in my experience. And um, so you probably made the best of every place that you've been. And oh, you're, you're just gonna have to struggle with Rome and Berlin, you know, as you- Rome, you've got to go to Rome. Rome is the most beautiful place in the world and it's got the friendliest people. And you know, the minions, they were, I think the Romans were their, like their inspiration. You're talking about from those kid from the kid movies, Despicable Me. Yeah, those they're so cute. You know, you walk by the the cafeteria where people are eating, uh -huh. and you just say "Buon appetito" to one person. You're like "Buon appetito," and then the whole room goes "Buon appetito." <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to say, my travels in Italy have been my favorite. Uh, I haven't been to Rome, but I've been to Florence, I've been to Sicily, uh, Cinque Terre other places and if nothing else uh food in italy is ridiculous and it's, i mean that in a good way yeah how i mean if i lived in italy i might die of just becoming obese because i would just constantly i mean it's not like i'm skinny right now but italy holy cow but it's also healthy right don't you europe living in europe you do have this advantage our food here in America, they do so much additives or they let them do certain things. They don't, even Germany, they, they, there's a lot more bio available. They're much stricter about their rules about keeping the food safe and pure and what have you. Do you find that to be true? I don't know how much you've traveled to America of late and eaten our food. Yeah, well, it's a choice. I mean, I think you have that choice in the States too. You can go shopping at Whole Foods, foods or, um, I mean, if you can afford to, and uh, that's that's also a thing here. I mean, people can afford to; they can go shopping for the, um, the 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 healthy foods. Otherwise, they'll go to the places, and it's the same. I think it's just a, a choice. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of prejudice of saying that it's uh, the American. It's maybe the American way of life that you know people choose these things. But it's a it's a you know you have to bring awareness to what you put in your mouth. Got and, it. Um, I think Germans, the Germans, you know, probably more likely tend to do that. Right. Well, uh, I think we all need to be careful what we put in our mouths and what comes out of our mouths. And that's a good <laughs> place to end it here. Let's all edit. Let's be good editors <laughs> like Sandy. Sandy Sample, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me, coming to us from Berlin. Who knows where we'll be coming to each other from next, but I really look forward to seeing you soon. And it's just, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It was just great to see you today. Thank you. I feel honored that you asked me. I'm glad I got a chance to share Sandy Saples with you. She's wonderful. And as I've said before, and I'll keep saying, there's no straight line in life or in creativity. It's all an adventure if you embrace it. 
So please do that. If you have questions about my adventure or the adventure that is this podcast, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it and it'll come to you regularly. Also, review it. Give us a whole bunch of stars wherever you listen and that'll help people find it. So thank you so much for listening this week. Take care of yourself. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated. And we'll see you next week with another guest. And I look forward to bringing them to you. Be well. Bye-bye.